Hello and welcome to the Sala podcast. My name is Steph and today I'm catching up with the artist Cassia Tons in a very different studio space to what I'm used to in the gorgeous Adelaide Hills in South Australia. Um, it's very cosy, it's a nice, it's a nice mild autumn day um, and a very gorgeous drive up that I'm very grateful for. Um, and while I'm talking about admiring the scenery, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land and waters that were on uh, the Paramount people and also any other First Nations with a connection to this area uh, and extend respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Cassia, thank you for having me today. Um, yeah, I know you've been really busy, <laughs> hoping you're having a bit of a restful time now. Um, I was wondering if you could start off by just giving a little brief uh, explanation of how you would describe your practice um, in whatever wording you would like. Um, hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for making the journey. It's always nice to welcome people into my tiny little space if they're not too claustrophobic. <laughs> we are both it. very short people, so it's working yeah. for us. <laughs> um, yeah, my practice, I guess the heart of it is hand embroidery. Um, I also do soft sculpture and masks, but um, I guess the thing that defines whatever I make is the labor intensive nature of it all if it doesn't take forever then I feel like I haven't you know done yeah. it properly haven't suffered enough I haven't <laughs> suffered enough exactly <laughs> <laughs> that paints a picture very well <laughs> um and uh is it mostly textile across those things or is there other mediums that come into it or you're pretty true on textile yeah that's my um that you go to that's what I've done for probably I think 18 years like I definitely started off painting and drawing um because I always collected fabrics Mm -hmm. and when I was a kid I have a very strong memory of dressing up like in an olden days outfit and pretending to knit because I couldn't (laughs) <laughs> knit so I was always very captivated by anything textiles yeah and it's quite fitting that I went on to major in knitting later in my yeah studies so. well, let's let's tap into that so the journey um to becoming an artist maybe was not so straightforward so you studied I did but um I think because it's been such a so many years and such a convoluted path to where I am now, yeah. I often forget my very early times when I still lived in Adelaide because I've been away for about, well, quite a long time. Mm. But as a teenager, me and my boyfriend at the time, he was like, do you want to be an artist with me? <laughs> Oh, you were invited. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, we might not like be able to eat some days and we might not have enough money to like sleep under a roof. So like we were, we embarked on this journey of romanticism into the starving artist. Um, Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we were very captivated by that idea and watched biopics and stuff of artists mm. who had 
struggles in their life. Um, he got quite a lot of success straight away, so that kind of burst his bubble of being a, a you know, didn't starve under, as long as he wanted. <laughs> yeah, he no longer practices. But for me, um, yeah, that wasn't my journey. I, um, I, so yeah, I, like, we would go down to different galleries in Adelaide and like knock on doors and be like, can we exhibit here? Mm. And um, so I put on my first show at the old Egyptian Bazaar in their upstairs gallery space um, and, yeah, sat it for two weeks, I think, and, like, like for seven hours every day oh and no, no one ever came in, so oh. I would just, like, sleep and <laughs> and then I, yeah, kind of left Adelaide and started on this journey which has been mm. across many countries and states and little towns and big towns and... Um, formal education and informal. And was art like at the forefront of that or was it? did it take a back seat for a while in that journey? I know you said it's convoluted. Yeah. Where did it sit? Yeah, like I think whatever I tried to do as art mm. wasn't very interesting and then I would have these personal projects that I felt really motivated to do, like mm. my one-year dress project and like which was you know kind of durational and a marathon and something I just really felt like I needed to do Mm. um for sustainability reasons yeah and And for anyone who's not familiar with that it was a a dress that you I'll let you say (laughs) um it was a calico sack dress that I sewed and I um embroidered onto it every day for a year um and at the end of the year, cut it up and had a dinner party and we all consumed part of the dress and all the people at the party also got a section of the dress that they could use for themselves, mm. like to sew into something new. Um, but I never classified that as an art project and so um, it's been a slow process of kind of bringing together my two worlds of like mm, – existing in the world and responding to the world around me through feeling the need to do something and an arts practice. Like, mm. I think a wider definition is very appropriate here. <laughs> That's a blurry line, I dare say, between, mm. you know, if you felt called to do that, then, yeah. Mm. Interesting that initially you didn't think this is an art project. It's just something <laughs> I feel compelled to do. And was that um, sort of a... I know that you're saying, yeah, textiles is sort of your main your main thing. Um, so I imagine that might have sprung from some of the environmental concerns around textiles. And does fashion come into it as well? Or let... <laughs> I'm asking a lot of questions. Sorry. Yeah. So um, I studied textile design for three years at RMIT in Melbourne. Um, which was an amazing course. It was extremely challenging and had a lot of environmental and futuristic concerns woven into the syllabus. Then going into the industry, both as a worker and then also as a small business um, co-owner of a small fashion brand, um, I've felt 
extreme pressure from the industry um, at all levels from things like you shouldn't be seen in the same outfit twice (laughs) (laughs) to everyone else is getting their stuff made offshore. You should too because it's um, financially more competitive and viable and I, in some ways, I wish I had stuck it out in the industry because I think a lot of positive changes have come from new designers Mm -hmm. and stuff um, entering the industry now. But back then, I just cut and run. I was like, no, I don't want to be a part of this. It doesn't feel right. Um, And... You know, I always get my stuff from op shops anyway. So the idea of purchasing something new and designed just, yeah, felt quite strange. Um, And so, yeah, this one-year dress project was 100% a reaction to this industry and a cleansing practice for Mm. myself Mm. um, to... Yeah. Did it align with when you sort of cut from that industry? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I left, um, did the classic thing, sold everything. (laughs) (laughs) Dramatic exits. Yeah. (laughs) Got to be done. Oh, yeah. That's nice that that uh, kind of bookmarked the end of of that journey. Yeah. How interesting. And what other themes have sort of um, come into your practice over, I know this has been a long journey, as you said, um, have there been other concerns beyond that textile kind of realm? I think one of the most consistent themes in my work is how humans interact with the world around them and choose to exist um, and also with one another. I've spent a lot of time on intentional communities and hitchhiking and listening to people's life choices and experience of the world and for me I think that was kind of um it was research I guess in a way without realizing it was because now I often imagine these societies and how they might operate if the world was slightly different um and that's very much inspired by all the different ways people can choose to live in the world and how they perceive they need to exist in the world and all those kind of trappings of power and hierarchies and what you're born into or, like, your privilege Mm, or... Systems that already exist. Exactly. Whether you fit into those constraints or if you can see a way out of them to exist in a different way that maybe is better for you or better for the world around you mm. i'm just gonna say jenny and the beautiful bird calls. i so. know oh so lovely do you have a lot of maggies out here yeah and there's actually two um uh, they called the frog mouths 20 frog, 20 frog mouths yes oh. they're so beautiful they kind of remind me of jim henson puppets just kind of
And so what does your making process look like? I imagine maybe it's not so segmented, especially when you say that, you know, you can reflect on past experiences and not realise that they function as research. What, yeah, what's that process like? Um, I find my process a little bit irritating, to be honest, because as much as I can plan something on paper, when I physically go to do it, I'm very much led by my materials. Okay, yes. And so I think that's probably why I have drifted into art versus design yes. because you have room for, yeah, interpretation from your theme. Mm. Um, but I've found in every case that what I end up with is very close to what I was setting out to achieve. It just... Um, the making process can be a little bit scary because it's like, oh, this is not right. <laughs> not aligning, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and same with the embroidery. Um, I've been really interested as to how other people do narrative embroideries. So I did reach out to a young embroidery artist in the UK to be like, how do you, like, put your pictures, like, do you draw them straight onto the material and she was like yeah I don't know either I like am <laughs> constantly trying different things so my method with narrative embroidery is to yeah with a pen just draw as I go oh, okay, um yeah. little bits and pieces um just straight onto the fabric straight onto yeah. the fabric and um, do you find that if you draw it a section and then do the actual embroidery and then perhaps the next bit could be developed or informed by the time you took to just finish that section? Like does it kind of just flow and yeah. have potential to change as you go? Yeah, like and within, you know, all textiles is very forgiving and flexible, um, which is kind of why I like it. There's a safety net that you can just always embroider over something, mm. like, <laughs> which is very time consuming, but it's perfectly reasonable to mm. do it if you really want to change mm. aspects of it. So, yeah, I think I always start working in the left-hand, bottom left-hand corner of things for some reason. Oh, yeah. I don't know why, but I'm always start there and then I'll... Is it the proximity to the body? I feel safe or something? I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe it's the <laughs> easiest spot to yeah. start because you don't, like, yeah. yeah, especially when you're working large, like, yeah. you don't need to reach and... Yeah. And what, what kind of scale, uh, you know, do you usually work out for those kind of things? I can see some quite sizable works behind you. Is yeah, it... usually big for some reason. It's like I'm fighting against my um, <laughs> my my little homes that I always <laughs> exist in. I'm always fighting against, like, yeah. Yeah. Being like, I can make large things <laughs> works in a small space and then you know if you're working on a large thing you don't need to re-establish a new idea every time like mm. you know you've got something to really sink into yeah. instead of doing lots of little works yeah um, that's a nice point isn't it yeah that real depth yeah and you're working your way like through like you're answering a question through that time that it takes you to 
create it and um I can see how that labor and duration becomes important then in that context mm, yeah. um yeah giving everything it's it's due diligence and spending enough time with something yeah um, yeah and also you know I think about the the traditions of the past like with like lace collars that would like a lace maker would spend a year to make one of those and that that's a year's worth of labor and recalling the past when even though there were a lot of inequalities like at least people were very aware of the time that it takes to make things in this day and age because there's so much um machine manufacturing people really can't grasp mm. that absolute painstaking hours that it involves to like I've got a tiny one there and that took me like three hours mm. I might be really slow but uh, gorgeous <laughs> oh no not that one no. the, the, oh, this one yeah 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 I'll have to take a picture for the recording <laughs> yeah so that's very tiny but that took me because I timed myself for the first time when you I, made that piece yeah because I don't usually mm. I just um just go yeah which makes it very emotional if I'm pricing anything because if I haven't mm. recorded how much I how much time I yeah. usually am like that took me a gazillion hours and it is worth a billion dollars <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah because yeah. I'm emotionally attached to it yeah um, yeah well, I mean, that labour sh- can't be measured purely in the unit of time. Oh, no. yeah, absolutely. Did you uh, find out what friends did with the pieces of the dress? Did any of them have little interesting journeys? Yeah, I think people just sewed them onto existing pieces of clothing. One of my friends, she gave me a little watercolour that she made of her segment. Oh, how yeah. lovely. Yeah. That continuance is really And so the masks that you make or the mask element of your practice, they're textiles as well. Yes? Can you tell me a bit more about that element? Yeah. So I um, have been making masks for, I think, 11 years now. I always have to remember to add on the years as the years go by. (laughs) Yeah, we're not stuck in time. Yeah, Yeah. because I think I used to always say a certain number. Um, (laughs) And... That was born out of sitting and not knowing how to interpret a journey that I had been on um, through Daintree. And for some reason, a mask mask got made. Mm. And so it's been quite a reverse... um, experience with my craft of mask making because the more I made masks the more interested I was in in the history of masks through various cultures um, up into present day and all the amazing different symbology and uses for masks Mm. Um, over the pandemic every new person I met just assumed that I made COVID masks and 
that was a bit annoying. But um, for me, I think it must be being quite an externally quiet person. Masks are somehow um, bringing that inner world to the external and representing mm. like older egos. I was really mm. interested in older egos for a while and the power of discovering different aspects of yourself. Mm. Um, and I guess whether they're visible or not and the choice to make them visible, I guess, as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But you'd be surprised how many contemporary mask makers there are in the world right now and it's fascinating how different everyone's um, like their practices practice are. Practice is. is interesting. It's like a little subculture. Um, <laughs> I love it. Brilliant. Yeah. Are you in touch with any other mask mate or do, is it a sort of quiet, distant admiration? Yeah, I think. We're talking globally? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, like I've definitely, yeah, connected in with them through the internet um, and I don't know what you'd do if you got together in real life. <laughs> no, that's too far. Not, not for us introverts. <laughs> Everyone oh. would be awkwardly sitting in their masks. Possibly masked, yes. Yeah. Because Fashion for Bank Robbers is one of the Instagram platforms for mask makers. Oh, that's a great handle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they did have some online um, Zoom oh, meetups yes. for global mask makers and everyone was in their masks. I didn't go, yeah. like, because... I didn't want to. Like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I had, no, I did not know that it was such a um, yeah prevalent little little group. Yeah. Um, that's great. And so, what? I mean, they're quite. From what I've seen, I mean, I don't know how people mistake them for COVID. Well, they uh, hadn't things. seen them. Okay, there's yeah. the clincher because no. they're intricate <laughs> and the and they don't give there. any protection from viruses. <laughs> That's a nice caveat. <laughs> Disclaimer. Yeah, that's how they're different from COVID masks. They don't protect you. <laughs> Just psychologically they protect yeah. you. Not and is it, um, like, is it important, do you think about them all being a mask for you as the maker or are they ever made for, like, being pictured on another person or what kind of, I don't know, because there's a lot to unpack about masks and wearing them and who's the wearer and why yeah I think like well they have been worn by lots of different people there was Mm. a phase where they were worn by performers Mm. people would borrow them for various oh for other projects as well oh yeah for other oh cool people like um but I think what I've noticed is if I dress up if I'm responsible for dressing someone up in my mask they will always t- take on the pose that I see of myself, like, which is, co- oh, yeah, yeah, which is, like, a downward tilting head yep. and quite reflective. So mm. because I will position, I'll because if I'm um, photographing them or, like, working with a photographer yeah. I, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I keep making them how I see myself in the mask or, like, yeah. that um, quiet reflection yes. even though you're in and a sort of protective stance almost isn't yes. it? yeah oh, that's so interesting because it makes sense though yeah because if I I have seen photos of one of my masks in worn by like a dancer in a more extroverted position mm. and I was like that's not correct 
Yeah. He just didn't. Yeah. Immediately, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, and there were masks in, this leads us into one of your recent projects, probably one of the, I think, when this episode goes live, that exhibition will still be available to see. Um, that is Biotic Commune at the Museum of Economic Botany. Please tell us about how that project came to be and, and what the uh, resulting works look like. Yep, so that was part of the Guildhouse Collections project. Um and I had quite a long project mm. by um, the collections project standards, mm. um, which was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, it was 17 months, I think, that I had to research, experiment and um, make the resulting works. Right. Um, so not feeling rushed is nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Although I still felt rushed. Yeah, because, <laughs> true. Yeah, because I'll take as much time as I possibly can to finish everything. Um, well, so the collections project, for anyone that doesn't know, is you get access to a collection of something. I feel like they've been quite diverse in the history of that program. Yep. Um, and then that can inspire the resulting work. So what was the collection that you were looking at? Um, I worked with both the living collection and also the historic collection of the Museum of Economic Botany um, because my interest area was the relationship between humans and plants throughout history and how it's shaped movement and um, learning and trade and spirituality and um, across time. So... Yeah, I was really looking back to be able to look forward um, and, yeah, I it was, it, was, it was very unexpected where it led me. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> Did you have a preconceived idea that you had to abandon or were you quite just open to be taken in whatever direction, uh, you know, because it's hard to just go, I'll wait till I've seen things and things come to me. It's hard to rescind that control. What what was it like in that sense? Yeah, I'm always very aware how much time I need to physically make things. So yeah. I try and form a even a rough a rough idea quite early on. Yeah. Um, my initial proposal was about a future um, futuristic portraits of human plant like where humans and plants are one thing mm. <laughs> and then I realised you are what you eat and we already are plants and mm. humans already so I kind of was like, well, I don't really need to do that. But I think the scope of my research quickly headed in um, a lot of contemporary avenues of research into really fascinating material labs of using different organic materials for future um, more sustainable materials. Um, mm. oh, so there was that element, is that in a textile sense of like, um, yeah, more sustainable materials, literally materials? Or, yeah, yeah, like I mean it's so, so varied but it was so inspiring. There's a specific website, the Future Materials Bank, which houses the experiments of people globally who have been making all sorts of things out of waste and um, so I started the process of trying to make 
bioplastics with sweet potato and um, um, I can't remember what else. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't very successful. I mean, it was slightly successful, but I'm not very precise. And yeah. so, but I loved it. I spent a really good chunk of my time trying to make these bio plastics because they were going to be my original materials for the masks. Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. So I went through all different types of starches and and then, you know, altering the different amounts of the different ingredients to increase the flexibility or the rigidity of it, like putting in dried flowers from the gardens, algae um yeah wow so oh and then that followed it kind of led into trying to grow mycelium like mushroom oh yes spores yeah. to grow masks um, oh wow that would yeah gosh there's a nice <laughs> wide scope <laughs> so yeah I had a little like scientific dabbling yeah before I um I think I was always eating mandarins and then putting them in my dash of my car. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so they were drying. Mm, and, and I bet they smelled lovely. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think one day I was like, oh, what if I... Yeah. What if I stitched them together? Yeah. yeah. And I think that's one of the images, one of the hero shots for the show was, yeah, this great with those lovely orange hues. This mandarin mask, sorry to refer to it so reductively. Um, yeah. Did the mask itself smell nice? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. It's a bit, well, especially like if it's like a hot day. Yeah. But the, you know, temperature in the museum is fairly great. Yeah, yeah. So I think they're not so scented at the moment. Mm. Um, yeah. But during install, I think that was summer. And oh, yes. <laughs> Lyndall from the gallery had to drive them back from Art Lab um, and they were only in her car a s- small amount of time and they had a very beautiful <sighs> smell so to them. Yeah. Oh, good. And does that work, did it exist as part of performance or is it more its own standalone sort of object or how how does it sit in the room? Yeah, so there's six of them all together um, and I always knew there was going to be a mask component Mm. Um, these are actually technically balaclavas Um, they relate to activist mask traditions of pussy riot and guerrilla girls and anonymous um, where all of these groups will wear a kind of uniform um, simple head covering Mm. and that is um, symbolic of their joint idea Mm. Um, and it's all about collectivism over the individual Mm. and for the biotic commune imagining this futuristic society of people who are stepping back from their position at the top of the hierarchy Mm. and food chain in Mm. the natural world to becoming very much caretakers and acknowledging the ways of their ancestors their wearing of this mask symbolises their commitment to that way of life. So I see all of the works in this exhibition as being cultural artefacts from this futuristic society 
So um, all things are functional <laughs> in a way. Um, there's the banana skin sneakers. There's the narrative blanket, which references the past and the future um, mm. or their current existence. And then there's a bulrush seed sleeping mat. So to know what I wanted to make for the show, I just thought, oh, what what does what does the average person <laughs> need? Something to, you know, sleep on and be mm. warm. Like, yeah, the Those basic. core needs. Yeah. yeah core yeah. needs. And, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the reason I knew from early on that I there was going to be a mask component was my observation and growing discomfort with the representation of the white male scientists that still sit on pedestals in the museum Mm. um, who look down on the natural specimens as Mm. though they are the origins of all Mm. the knowledge and um mm, there's sort of a built-in reverence to the height as well isn't there yeah. yes and the way that illuminated the symbology of all those choices um and I guess my way of rebellion or activism or speaking out is always quite quiet and gentle mm. and tries to be inclusive rather than shut out people who might feel um more reverence for the past Mm. and so for me the placement of the masks was important they're at eye height or maybe a little bit lower um and they aren't behind any sort of glass they're more accessible um and they yeah I guess their role is to just be these peaceful opponents to these old symbols that we are still presenting and going against that ongoing representation of colonisation and... Yeah, sort of interrupting that. Yeah, I think because so many institutions and um, buildings and displays, we're so accustomed to seeing them and so I I think it's about re-examining what these actually symbolize and Mm. if that is part of the future we want to be um or if it's time to sort of consciously deviate I guess yeah yeah and have a more holistic um representation of who actually the knowledge keepers are of Mm. all these this plant wisdom and yeah I think re-examine is the great operative word there isn't it and yes it's a, a quiet way of, of having that presence there ask more about where we are in the hills how long have you been here because I know you traveled a lot a lot a lot in overseas 
and you've been um, all other places around Australia, but um, what does it mean to be here in the hills and does the environment and area influence your practice? Yes, absolutely. It does? Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, yeah, this is coming home for me after yeah. 18 years old. No, I don't know how long, actually. <laughs> An <laughs> amount of time. <laughs> An amount of time away. Mm. Um, and this is nice because I'm close to my family that I haven't, you know, had that chance to be so close with for mm. a long time. Um, this is probably my... The, the safest kind of home environment that I've had as an adult. Mm. Um, I love the simplicity. Um, I love the closeness to nature and how small it is. Mm. I feel really safe in little, little yeah. spaces. Yeah. Um, and... There's nothing frivolous about it. It's just, yeah, it's what you need and it sounds like it suits you. Yeah. 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 Um, I think, you know, while I have done times in urban environments and like lived in warehouses with huge amounts of people in, um, you know, the outskirts of Melbourne, when I was younger, um, I don't think I could do that anymore um yeah I I'm quite sound and light sensitive so being able to have my own little space Mm. to call home um it's really good for my health Mm. mentally and physically and is this the longest place that you've stayed in one spot for some time? Yeah. 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 That must be interesting too, after the dynamic of, you know, being kind of moving every so often. Um, and you said that coincided with the pandemic actually, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Is that interesting in the context of being a maker or in any other way? Yeah, it worked really well for me. Um, like, and because... Coming coming back to this state, um, it was a really soft introduction back into it, seeing as no one could go anywhere. Um, so it was a sort of useful pandemic in yes, a way. Yes. Um, I didn't have any pressures to kind of quickly step my toe into, like, the city world. Mm. And um, I was working to finish a show at the time, so I was... Um, in my first year, I was living in a, a large tent and just having a great time, just sewing and trying to grow food for the first time um, because previously moving around all the time, I was far more interested in like foraging mm. and like very temporary ways of living. And yeah. so coming back here was like, okay, now it's time to plant a garden. Mm. Well, try to. (laughs) I'm a slow learner when it comes to that. Um, And, yeah, I think the only thing is that when you move around a lot, you can constantly be inspired by the new or Mm. being having fresh eyes in a new environment and being the um, outsider. And so 
it's quite a different challenge mm. to to exist and continue to make art now that this is a, a base mm. because I need to make in a different way and draw my inspiration from different Mm, different different places yeah yeah Yeah, it's a different dynamic entirely isn't it how do you keep having fresh eyes in the familiar place yeah Mm. Yeah. but my my new my new theme that I'm working on is all about shelter and security so it kind of very timely yeah yeah it's kind of um both probably as an individual but also just globally (laughs) yeah a hundred percent yeah I started talking with people about two years ago for this project um, to understand, yeah, their version of security and daily life and, and like, going into their homes and seeing their personal spaces and whatever. Mm. So it's taken me a little while to have the time to then um, come back to that project. Mm. Um, and is this one that's booked in for a future that... The resolution will be somewhere sometime. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It'll be um, in Ararat in March next year, and then um, probably come to SA funding if funding, funding comes. Funding committing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lovely. Oh, that's so good. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing so candidly about your practice and and the lovely blurry line between life and, and art and where can we follow along for your upcoming projects such as the one you've just mentioned are you on instagram yes i have instagram it's just my name cassia dot easy <laughs> and i do know for a fact that you have a very lovely website <laughs> so yeah. um i'll put the link to that in there as well oh and it is just starting to pitter patter with rain How lovely and symbolic (laughs) to sign off. (laughs)